Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. day in our Lenten sermon worship series about sealed in the tomb, things Christians should stop doing, because next week is Palm Sunday. Can you believe it? It is almost Easter. And so today is the last time that we'll have the opportunity for a little bit to talk about things Christians should stop doing. And it's been quite a journey. We've talked about using judgmental language. We have talked about triangulation. We have talked about healthy ways to resolve our issues with one another. We have talked about how there are churches that have thought themselves wrongly in competition, but instead we are companions in Christ. We have talked about a lot of things that we can do differently, but today we're going to talk about how we can stop doing something that we've not been doing. It's a different way of thinking about it. We're going to talk about something that we need to stop doing because there is something we need to start doing. And that is to not stay silent about church. And that's a hard thing because a lot of us have been very aware of a concept in the United States of America that is called separation of church and state, right? If you've done your your studies, if you've completed civics, a lot of times you hear that, separation of church and state. And it has been imparted in multiple generations that there is a divide in your public life and your spiritual one that you kind of don't let those two things come together. But the concept that is put out into the Constitution was that no government would establish a religion, which is perfectly fine by me. I'm not sure if you're aware, but we are not the largest group of Christians in the United States. And if I wanted to be in a Catholic country, I would go straight to the source. I would go to Vatican City and tell the Pope hello every time I saw him walking around. That's not what I want to do. I don't want to be in a Catholic state, but I also don't want to be in a Southern Baptist state. That's also not where I feel comfortable. I love Methodism, but we're like the third largest, or fourth if you count Leighton Catholics. We are the fourth largest group of method of Christians in the United States, and we're going to have to go through a, a nice line of succession before we get to Methodism. So in no way, shape, or form would I like to see Christianity or any other religion put forth as the national religion. I don't want to see that. And I do appreciate the fact that the government doesn't prop up any religion as better than the other. Instead, all of us have some equal benefits under the law and protection, and that's a beautiful thing. But what do we do with that as individual Christians trying to figure out when it's appropriate to talk about our faith and when it's not? And most of us have had that moment where you're like, I don't know if this is the moment where I'm supposed to talk about this or I'll just play it safe and not. It's easier not to say anything than to say something at all. And where did that concept come from? Separation of church and state. Do you know where it came from? Thomas Jefferson, my fellow alumnus, came up with that comment, came up with it. And do you know when it dated itself? He wrote it in a letter in 1802 to the Danbury Baptist Association of Connecticut. But it was so powerful in articulation that people clung to it and used it. 
And it certainly has a point. It has a, a great emphasis of the fact that we were not going to be an Anglican nation like the England that we had just broken away from. We were not going to be declared a Catholic state like much of Europe had remained at the time. Instead, we were going to be a place where you could be any religion that you wanted and not have to fear persecution by the government. That's a great idea. That's a fabulous idea. Because even Thomas Jefferson and some of his fellow students at William & Mary had started to dabble in a different form of faith. They had become deists. Now, deism waxes and wanes across human history, but at the time it was seeing a, a, a real resurrection in its prominence in educated persons. And that was because deism said that there is a creator God, you're still walking along with Christians and Jews right there, but what happens is that that creator God created the earth and then like a clockmaker wound it up and let it go and never again messed with it. Instead, choosing to watch and observe and expecting that people would do the work. Deists don't believe that God in any way, shape, or form is active in the world. Therefore, miracles are not possible. Which is why if you've ever seen Thomas Jefferson's version of the Bible, he literally cut out any miracles of Jesus because he didn't believe they were possible. And for us, I like to think that, yes, we are supposed to be doing things to make this world feel like the kingdom of God. Yes, we are supposed to be doing things that bless other people. And yes, I still hope God is doing miracles. I hope both. But Thomas Jefferson had a lot of power and privilege, and he had an incredible voice. And people respected him. And sometimes people misinterpreted him. Now, there were a number of religious people that had been involved in the United States becoming the United States. One of the signatories on the Declaration of Independence was the Reverend John Witherspoon from New Jersey. And he insisted that you include language about our creator in the Declaration of Independence. He also was there for the signing of the Confederation. He was also there for the signing and the ratification in New Jersey of the Constitution of the United States of America. He has been very active and engaged with that. There were other religious persons, other Christians, who were very much part of the, the writings of the country that we love and in which we are protected. James Madison was actually a Christian, so that did help that he was writing a document that talked about grace and forgiveness and the ability to be who we are. What a wonderful way to have that as part of this nation. But when we think about that and we start to internalize separation of church and state as in, when I am not in the church, I don't talk about the church, is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is very clear. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. He has gone up on top of a mountaintop. He is sitting there with his disciples and others have gathered and he has already given them the Beatitudes and now he is telling them about the harsh, difficult reality of being a disciple of Jesus. And that is, you are salt. You are light. You are the city. And he's very clear about using those three words to describe you. Now, if you have ever had a meal that was lacking in salt, you know that salt is important, right? As my mother says, you can tell if somebody forgot to salt the water in your grits. You can tell. And you can try to add it on the back end, but it ain't ever going to be right. You got to have it in there the whole time. So salt is important, but too much salt can destroy a meal too. So using that cooking language, that metaphor, you have to do a little bit of salt, give it a taste, see how you are, add some more. 
until you get to that correct place, right? That perfect where salt is accompanying the other flavors and bringing them out, but not overpowering them. I mean, how many of you go home and take a big spoonful of salt? You don't, because salt goes with other things, right? It goes with things. Jesus isn't Jesus just in and of Jesus. Jesus wants to be a part of your life, a part of your relationships, a part of what is going on in our communities and in our homes. Jesus doesn't want to just be a spoonful of salt on Sunday morning. Jesus wants to be a part of all that we are and what we're doing. So that salt metaphor is really important. And you can't lose your saltiness, which makes some Christians very happy because they're already pretty salty. I remember one time I was doing a funeral for an incredible man at my last church, and he had been hardcore in the Navy. I mean, he was all about that Navy. And when he died, he had a habit of using colorful language, (laughs) being a little brass. (laughs) And so when he died and I had the opportunity to offer my version of the eulogy for him, I remember saying, Frank was salty. And Frank was salty. When we were bland, Frank was not, right? Frank was happy to be the one that was like, we need to make sure that we're all staying on target here. We need to make sure that we are all focused. And so he was the salt even in a church of saltiness, right? He was keeping us focused on what we were supposed to do, whether we wanted to do that or not, because some of us kind of like that easy, bland existence, but that's not what Christ is calling us to. And then the light, that's such an important metaphor, The light is so important. It's not just something that we show on the altar. It's not just something that we need because, guess what? It's hard to read if you don't have light. We need light because light inspires. It warms. It gives us hope. It is a visual reminder that we can see other people and other things that are happening not only with us but in the world. And if you've ever had the opportunity to watch a sunrise or a sunset, you know the power of the changing of light from darkness to light and light to dark. You know that there is something beyond words that happens in that transition. And when you come out in the darkness of night and watch the sun rise, which we're going to have the opportunity to do this Easter, there is something indescribable there. It is like witnessing transformation and then getting to be a part of what is happening in this new day. And we are that light. And we are not meant to hide it. We don't come in and light our little candles for an hour and then put them away. Jesus doesn't want you to light your light so that you can put a bushel basket over because if you do that, one of two things is going to happen. Either the light's going to go out because you're going to deprive it of oxygen, what it needs to grow and stay alive, or you are going to set the basket on fire. Also not good. We are here to use our light responsibly, to illuminate when there is darkness, to be a place where people can come and find the warmth of grace and hope, and love. We are called to use our light, not just so that we may see, but others may see us and thus see God at work in the world. It's an important place and an important role to use our light responsibly. And the last one is quite genius. Too many Christians think that they are solitary beings. Just because you're sitting by yourself in a pew does not mean that you are alone. We are a city. He's talking to 12 disciples, 12 apostles. And he says to them, you are a city. And they're like, we're a band of misfits. And you see a city? Yes. A city is a place where people go to learn and experience new things. 
A city is a place where people go because they have a hope that their life can be different. A city is a place where people stop on their journey so that they can find hospitality and rest and food when necessary. We are a city. And we are a city not because we are growing that way in numbers in Crozet. We are a city because this family of faith chooses to be a place where people can come and experience radical hospitality. They can come and be known. They can come and be in relationship and be valued for who they are rather than what they provide. That's what makes us a city on the hill. Are we literally a city on the hill? No, I'm not sure that we're actually a town, quite frankly. I don't know that we've actually been made that status. But, and we're not on a hill, we're at the foot of a mountain. So we are not exactly on a hill. But for Jesus, when people look at Crozet, he wants them to see us, to see us as a church, to know that there is a place where if people are hungry, they can come and be fed, that if people are alone, they can come and find a family of faith, that if people are yearning to experience God's grace, they will find it here. And so we are a city. We have been called to that status. And then most of us let fear clamp our mouths shut. Jesus is telling us to talk, which is exciting for some of us who talk a lot. Being invited to talk is very encouraging, right? But some of us need to take the authority and step into talking. Well, what are you going to talk about? That's why the church has to be multifaceted, so that there's something to talk about. Can you imagine if you are standing around at your place of business or around where you live or you're gathered with your friends somewhere and you start talking as friends do about things like current events and what's going on in the news and what happened at the Oscars last night. You start talking about things that are happening and that's your moment. That door is starting to open where you're like, you know, it's really funny. While the rest of the world is trying to pick sides on who was right at the Oscars, we can talk about the fact that as a church, as a body of Christ, we've been talking about not triangulating people. We've been talking about not judging people. And if you've been following what's been going on with Chris Rock and Will Smith, you know there's a lot of judging going on. But we've been talking about that. We're not going to do that. Nobody was in Chris Rock's head. Nobody was in Will Smith's head. And nobody was in Jada Pinkett Smith's head. None of us are in each other's heads. We won't know unless we talk. We've been talking about this. We're a place where we've been talking about that hypocrisy is not going to be our identity. And then while the world has seen incredibly bad behavior from Christians for almost 2,000 years, we are also here to talk about the things that we do well and the things that we want to do better. So when you're talking to people and they're saying, you know, every time I drive around Charlottesville at every meeting, it seems like there's somebody who's hungry and panhandling. What is going on here? Why can't people eat? That's your opportunity to go, you know, it's funny you should mention that. So at my church, we've got a food pantry mission project that feeds people every single Monday afternoon. And we don't just feed people. We actually go and pick up food fresh from Wegmans and feed people. And then if that's not enough, if you're looking for an opportunity for you to feed people on May 7th, you can bring whoever you want who's complaining about not being able to feed people. And we will pack meals. In one hour, you can pack over a 1,000 meals and think about how many people you can feed with one hour on a Saturday. And that's an opportunity to talk about what the church is doing. And we recognize that sometimes it's hard to have the words. And so you're looking for those moments. But if you looked at every Sunday as an opportunity to take one thing away, 
something that we've prayed, something that we've sung, something that you've heard, something that we are doing or going to do, that's an opportunity to talk. And it doesn't have to be, hey, my church is the best church ever. It is. But we are trying to be better. We're trying to be the best that we can be. But we would be better if you were with us. You know, we'd love to have you come and see what we're doing and be a part of it. You know, it's amazing. Or I'm thinking about going and packing some meals. You want to come with me? Would you like to come with me? That is exactly what Jesus is trying to challenge us to do. Don't stay silent. Silence is golden. Silence is easy, says the world. Not so with Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, was dead until Sunday morning before sunrise, rose from the dead, and the first thing he told Mary Magdalene was, go and tell. Go and tell. Don't stay silent. Go and tell. That's how important it is that we tell. That's why Easter is such a big deal, because we've got a lot to tell. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is risen. We start telling people that this is important because they too will have a resurrection day. In chapel this past week, I had all the kids sitting in here and we've been running them through the gamut. Is it still Lent? Yes. How can you tell? Purple. What color are you looking for? White. What will happen on white? Easter. And so this week we were talking about the butterfly. Right? How many times have you seen the, the comparison of butterflies in Easter? Right? Butterflies and Easter. For those of you that haven't been in biology for a while, here's your primer. Right? The butterfly doesn't start off as a butterfly, it starts off as eggs. And then hatching from the eggs are caterpillars. And caterpillars, to make a nice little metaphor for human beings, spend all of their time what? Consuming. All they do is eat. Now the kids are at the point where they still think caterpillars are cute. And they still like caterpillars. But you and I both know that at some point they're going to grow them to be adults and like they're killing my cherry tree. And so we get to that point where, like, because caterpillars are so busy trying to eat every leaf that they will destroy the tree. They'll just eat and eat and eat until there's nothing left and the tree dies. Well, that's not a metaphor for humanity, is it? But the caterpillars, they, they have to eat because there is coming a time, a day, very soon, when they will not eat again. They are going to go into their chrysalis stage where they are going to build a cocoon around themselves and they will look dead. They will not eat, you will not see what's going on, but something is happening. Something is happening in that cocoon that looks like a tomb. Something is being transformed. And when the day is right and the weather is warm, they will emerge from that cocoon as a butterfly. And they will fly, and they will drink the nectar from the flowers, and they will spread pollen, and they will help make this world more beautiful. And then when their time is right, they will lay more eggs and the cycle will continue. But here is the secret. Butterflies are not about Jesus. They're not. The same Jesus that went into that tomb is the very same one that came out. That's why he said to Thomas, touch my hands and my side and my feet and see that it is the same Christ that you crucified that is now here. I will eat breakfast with you, fish on the beach. I will show you that I am real. The same me that went in is the same me that came out. But that is not going to be the case for us. Imagine sitting with over 65 kids and saying to them, how great would it be if you never fell and hurt your knee again? How great would it be if your body never got sick? If you never had to cry again? 
if nobody would ever hurt you and you would never hurt anybody again, that is what our Easter will be. A body that will never do those things again. Hearts that will be enlivened for all time. We are the butterflies. Easter in butterflies is about us. Seeing that Jesus came back and then triumphantly ascended into heaven and we are waiting for his return so that we can be transformed into eternal butterflies. That we will no longer be consumers, but those that bless. That we will no longer be those who are constantly focused on taking in and taking in and taking in and never giving anything back. That we will be transformed for all eternity. That is the metaphor of the butterfly. And the kids were like, yeah, that would be great. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be great if that's what we were going to become? Here's the good news. You will. And if you caught what Jesus said, there's something that I think we skip over so much in this text. Jesus is saying so many wonderful things that sometimes we miss the nuance. So when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said, and probably you heard it, right, that for those of you who, do, who don't do these things right and then teach other people to do things wrong, you will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Notice Jesus didn't say you will be the least in burning hell. So you're telling me that I can get it wrong and I can even help other people get it wrong and yet I can still get in? Yes. That is grace. That is grace. But how many times functionally in our heads have we heard this text or read this text or heard it just now and thought, some of us are going to hell and some of us are going to be great in the kingdom. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I have a place for you and if you want to be there, even if you've messed up and failed, you can come. And that is something worth telling people because sometimes, it's hard to believe, Christians got it wrong and said that you're going to hell. You're going somewhere else, right? Again, that's that judgment language that we're trying to leave in the tomb. But Jesus is saying, if you want forgiveness, it is yours. If you want grace, I will serve it to you every time you ask. Every time you come, it is here. You will never come, and even if we ran out of bread and we ran out of the cup, God's grace is still here. It will never run dry. It will never go stale. But the difference is, are you trying? Are you trying to do something that shines your light, that adds in that little bit of salt, that reminds people that we are a city on the hill? And that is who we're called to be. So the next time you wonder, and it's like double dutch, do I get in, do I not? Do I get in? Jump in. Jump in. You know, we were just talking about that at my church. I didn't know you went to church. You know, it's so funny that you say that because I was actually thinking about going and being a part of this thing where we're actually going to address that. Huh. When is that? Those are those moments where your invitation, your inspiration can help people to realize what this is all about. At the end of the day, being a Christian is about Christ. And what is Christ if not faith, hope, and love? And the greatest of these is love. Love. When your faith fails, God's love does not. 
When you feel hopeless, God's love is still there. And when your earthly love fails, God's never does. And that is the gospel. And you will put your own spin on it. You will give it your own portrayal. You will give it your own invitation or not. But that is what God is asking us to share. And that is what Christ is commanding. Don't stay silent. No one is going to ask you on your deathbed how many Christians you converted. No one's going to ask you that. I've been at a lot of deathbeds that has never come up in conversation. But do you know what does come up? Do you think God can really forgive me? Do you think that God loves me and knows me? Do you think when I die, I will see the people that have, I've lost already to death? If your conversations tomorrow and in the days ahead could change those conversations at the end of life into, I know where I'm going. I know my God. And I know who I'm going to see. And I am not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of anything because I know my God and I know who I am to God and God's grace is enough. You might be surprised how your little conversations in the days ahead can really transform lives as they progress. You are the salt. You are the light. We are a city on a hill. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.